And the Trump administration, you know, was front and center in backing these moves that did sideline any hope of a peaceful end to the conflict. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. this podcast, Israeli forces are massing on the border of Gaza for a ground invasion of the Strip. We're now entering the fifth straight day of fire across the border as Hamas has been shooting unguided missiles into Israel and the Israeli armed forces have responded with airstrikes, artillery and tank barrages. Overnight, the Israeli military announced that an invasion had already begun, only to retract the statement later. But the pattern from earlier rounds of conflict looks unmistakable and it seems to only be a question of when rather than if a ground incursion into the Gaza Strip will begin. A human tragedy has already begun to unfold and we're going to see it magnified in subsequent days. Of course, the conflict has very deep-seated roots, but the proximate cause of the latest round of violence has been the continued Israeli annexation of land in East Jerusalem, and this led to escalating protests by Palestinians earlier this month. In response to this, the Israeli police launched a raid of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, which is a very holy site in both Islam and Judaism, and the militant group Hamas then gave Israel a deadline from, uh, you know, to, to withdraw its security forces from the compound and began firing rockets when the forces remained. These events have raised fresh questions about the legacy of Donald Trump's Middle East policy and the direction that the, the Biden administration is going to take towards this region. That's the subject of today's bonus episode of America Explained. Level-headed analysis of events like this can be very hard to come by, so if you enjoy this episode, please spread it on social media and to your friends. And remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Gort, that's A-N-D-Y-G-A-W-T. So, just a few months ago, Trump administration officials were positively giddy about their accomplishments in the Middle East. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who you may remember had been appointed a Middle East peace envoy despite having no previous diplomatic experience, well, he wrote in March in an article in the Wall Street Journal that thanks to the accomplishments of the Trump administration, quote, we are witnessing the last vestiges of what had been known as the Arab-Israeli conflict. This conflict, he said, was ultimately nothing more than a real estate dispute. And the Trump administration, Kushner said, had indeed effectively solved this dispute. Now, these were big and particularly in the light of recent events, particularly ridiculous words. But they're worth dwelling on to understand the view of the Arab-Israeli conflicts which really underpinned the Trump administration's approach and the legacy that this created uh, for today. Trump's approach to the Arab-Israeli conflict had really two main elements. The first of these was to align the US very, very closely with the Israeli government led by Benjamin Netanyahu, which is one of the most right-wing governments that Israel has seen in recent years. This alliance led to one of the, you know, a really, really big, one of the biggest consequential shifts in American policy towards Israel for decades. So for a long time in the 1990s and the 2000s, American policy and, and in fact, the, you know, the policy of the general international community had focused on bringing about a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through what was known as the two-state solution. So this was to be a negotiated end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict one which would see the creation of a sovereign Palestinian state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and this would also see a negotiation, a negotiated outcome 
I am to decide what was to be the final status of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a particularly controversial flashpoint in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because both sides claim it and see it as their capital. They want it to be the future capital of their states. And, and as you know, this is the issue that's driving the latest round of violence. And this was supposed to be decided through a negotiated solution between Israel and the Palestinians in which both would reach an agreement on the future status of Jerusalem. Although it was commonly understood, you know, it's no secret to anyone that America has been aligned much more closely with Israel than with the Palestinians in recent decades. But the US for a very long time avoided taking a formal position on what the final status of Jerusalem should be. And I still remember then in 2008, Barack Obama really got into trouble during the presidential campaign when he said, quote, Jerusalem will remain the capital of Israel and it must remain undivided. And the reason he got in trouble for saying this was because the settled US position for decades had been that the final status of Jerusalem will be the subject of negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. And that a likely outcome of this was that a division of the city was likely with East Jerusalem becoming the future capital of a Palestinian state. It, it was never really clear if Obama made this comment by mistake or in some calculated attempt to appeal to pro-Israeli voters, but he was forced to backtrack from it very, very quickly because at the time saying this, saying that he um, foresaw Jerusalem as being the united capital of Israel in the future with no carve out of East Jerusalem for the Palestinians, this was a very, very controversial point of view. East Jerusalem had been occupied by Israel as a result of the Six-Day War in 1967, and while Israel claimed it as its capital, claimed East Jerusalem as its sovereign territory and, and kind of one of a whole with the rest of Jerusalem, the settled position of the international community is that East Jerusalem is occupied territory and that its status will be decided as a subject of negotiation. So it was very controversial for Obama to say uh, something different. In that same election though, Obama's opponent, John McCain, said that the US should move its embassy, which is currently, or, or sorry, rather at the time was currently in Tel Aviv, to Jerusalem. And this was, uh, you know, a very controversial position because this was basically saying that the US kind of recognizes Israeli sovereignty over all of Jerusalem. And McCain, of course, went down to defeat in that presidential election. But when Trump got elected and came into office in 2017, this is exactly what Donald Trump did. So this was really controversial because it seemed to give the Netanyahu government exactly what it wanted, an end to this position of prevarication and an acknowledgement by the US that it recognized Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel. As on most issues, the Trump administration sent kind of a whole host of mixed signals about what this moving of the embassy actually meant. But Trump himself said that the issue of East Jerusalem had been, quote, taken off the table, which indicated that, that, you know, this move of the embassy was indeed supposed to be an American blessing of um, continued efforts by Israel to annex East Jerusalem and, you know, um, dismiss Palestinian claims to that part of the city. And this really spurred Netanyahu's governments to go on with its efforts to annex and evict Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, now with this kind of tacit US blessing. The background to all of this is this feeling in pretty much every capital in the world that the prospect of a two-state solution is now dead. Israeli governments refuse to accept the existence of a sovereign Palestinian state, which could be used by groups like Hamas as a springboard for attacks against Israel, and groups like Hamas, you know, and, and Islamic Jihad, sort of extremist groups that have been increasing massively their influence over Palestinian politics and society, 
they, you know, likewise reject the idea of continued coexistence with Israel. So there's been this kind of um, emergence of, of, of extremists on both sides of the conflict who no longer feel that they can cooperate or make concessions to the other side. And in Israel, at least, this has led to a general movement towards imposing changes to the status quo unilaterally. So things like proceeding with the annexation of East Jerusalem, the idea being that if um, Palestinians can be displaced from East Jerusalem and, and Israeli settlers can move into their homes and their land instead, then it would be impossible for in the future for Palestinians to claim this land back, you know, it's because to, to displace those Israeli settlers would become a, a political impossibility. So this would be kind of a, just a de facto unilateralist alteration of the status quo, move the Palestinians out of East Jerusalem, move the Israeli settlers in, and that's going to create a de facto situation where Israel will control and will always control that land in East Jerusalem. So Israel's been moving ahead with, with this. They've also been moving ahead with deploying military systems, particularly the American-funded Iron Dome missile interceptors, which provide a measure of defense against Hamas rocket attacks. You know, so Israel has been seeking its security through these unilateral moves, no longer, you know, indicating that it believes in the possibility of a peaceful negotiated end to the conflict. And the Trump administration really encouraged this trend, backing Israel's unilateral moves to the hilt. But with no hope of an end to the occupation and Israel increasingly sidelining Palestinians' aspirations, this really contributed to future explosions of violence like the one that we've seen over the past few weeks. And the Trump administration, you know, was front and center in backing these moves that did sideline any hope of a peaceful end to the conflict and kind of backed Israel's unilateral attempts to ensure its own security as it sees it. But as I say, this has really created the, it, there's no end in sight to the conflicts, there's no end in sight to the occupation of Palestinian territories, and this has made future spasms of violence like this inevitable. So it was really kind of ridiculous to claim that, that this somehow ended the conflict. The same thing can be said of the other aspects of Trump's Middle East policy, so, and this is the one that he and his defenders like to talk about the most, and this was likewise built on the idea that the Palestinians were, in a sense, no longer really relevant, that the aspirations of Palestinians were no longer really relevant, and there was a way for Israel and the broader region to kind of move on while ignoring the continuation of the occupation. So throughout his time, Trump encouraged a number of Arab countries none of which had ever been at war with Israel, but which nevertheless had did not have diplomatic relations with the country, to sign what were called the Abraham Accords. These normalized diplomatic relations um, between Israel and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, and they also opened links for tourism and travel. And similar agreements followed between Israel and then Sudan and Morocco um, shortly after the, the initial Abraham Accords. If we go back to Kushner's article, which I talked about a few minutes ago, we can see the huge hopes the Trump administration pinned on these agreements. So in Kushner's article, he makes this huge deal about how pictures are appearing on social media of Muslims from Dubai and Jews from Israel kind of standing together and, and taking selfies. And he talks about how, how as a result of the accords and the fact that this kind of travel is now possible between Dubai and the UAE on one hand and Israel on the other, so he says, quote, Muslims are posting peaceful pictures of visits to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, blowing a hole in the propaganda that says the holy site is under attack. He also says that Netanyahu has been tweeting positive things about Arab leaders, and he says that this, quote, reinforces that Israel is rooting for the success of the Arab world. 
And it was developments like this which caused Kushner to claim that the world was seeing the last vestiges of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, there's something very Trumpian about this focus on social media as, as, as an important factor, and I think it's a good metaphor though for how ephemeral all these things were. So, you know, it was clearly when Kushner was saying that it, it's complete propaganda to say that there's a problem um, around the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's been proved completely untrue over the last couple of weeks. The fact that it was temporarily possible for Muslims from Dubai to fly into Israel and then visit the mosque doesn't in any way change the fact that the, you know, Palestinians' claims to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is one of the most holy sites in Islam, had still not been resolved. You know, this problem still remained. And, you know, even if temporarily tourists from Dubai could come the the underlying structural problem here, which is the conflict between Israeli and pa Israelis and Palestinians over that site, has not been resolved. So of course it was going to blow up into violence again at, at some point in the future. And this kind of shows how these agreements between Israel and Arab countries were never really about addressing any of the issues which drive the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And if anything, they just made them worse. One reason for this is that it, it, it's a big myth to believe that Arab governments are mostly motivated by the plight of the Palestinians, or that what the sheikhs of Dubai or the UAE do or think really has any influence over that situation on the ground. These agreements were about completely different issues. For a long, long time, Israel has been cooperating closely already with countries like Dubai and the UAE, and indeed with Saudi Arabia, which wasn't part of the Abraham Accords, and they've been cooperating to confront the country that they view as their shared enemy, which is Iran. And these agreements weren't some kind of dramatic breakthrough, but actually the continuation of long-term trends which have been unfolding for decades. And these trends have an awful lot to do with, you know, the quest by Sunni Arab countries and by Israel to work together to contain Iran's quest for a nuclear weapon and its expanding influence in the region. They really have nothing at all to do, you know, these agreements have nothing at all to do with the Palestinians or with resolving the fundamental issues in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Trump administration also tossed other sweeteners into these deals, so... They agreed a $23 billion arms sale to the United Arab Emirates as, as a kind of a side deal to the Abraham Accords. And for Morocco, they tossed in a recognition of its claim over the disputed Western Sahara region. So, you know, that again goes to show how, you know, this was, a, this was a trade that was taking place about issues that were just fundamentally nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But what the agreements were was a very visible sign that Arab governments considered the plight of the Palestinians as, as, as kind of irrelevant to their long-term strategic interests. So establishing normal diplomatic relations with Israel without imposing any conditions to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict really sent this message that Israel could proceed with the occupation of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, they could move forward with unilateral efforts to annex East Jerusalem, you know, they could move forward with basically having abandoned, you know, any, any attempt at a peace process, and that the Arab governments weren't going to lift a finger in response to any of that. So it's actually another way in which the Trump strategy kind of ignored and sidelined Palestinian rights and aspirations in a way that was very visible to Palestinians. And this helped create the conditions for the latest round of violence. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform.
the Biden administration and how has it dealt with this legacy? Well, it seems really clear to me that the, these developments over the last few days, the last week or so, have clearly caught the administration off guard. The US doesn't yet have an ambassador to Israel and it hadn't really clearly figured out a policy direction when the violence began. It was pretty clear that the idea of a negotiated solution to the conflict is dead at the moment. Israel has been going through turbulent uh, times in its domestic politics. It's not really been clear day to day how long Netanyahu could continue as the Prime Minister of Israel following uh, recent setbacks in elections. And it was also just this, this sense, I think, that this, this region, the Middle East, and this conflict in particular are just not as important to the US as they used to be, especially when weighed against America's domestic crises and competing foreign policy issues like the rise of China. The situation is also very difficult for Biden because Netanyahu has made himself absolutely toxic with the Democratic Party uh, by his close alignment with Republicans and, and efforts that he made to undermine Barack Obama in the final years of Obama's term. So, so, so far, the Biden administration hasn't really taken a, a clear stance at all on, on this unfolding conflict, and that's frustrated a lot of people. It's only issued lukewarm statements calling for an end to the violence and, and on both sides and endorsing Israel's right to defend itself. The State Department did say that it was, quote, deeply concerned about the evictions in East Jerusalem, but the administration is under a lot of pressure from uh, progressive Democrats to take a much firmer stand than that. So just listen to some of these quotes that have been made by progressive Democrats. So Congressman Mark Pocan from Wisconsin tweeted, quote, We cannot just condemn rockets fired by Hamas and ignore Israel's state-sanctioned police violence against Palestinians including unlawful evictions, violent attacks on protesters, and the murder of Palestinian children. USAID should not be funding this violence. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also weighed in, saying, quote, We stand in solidarity with the Palestinian residents of Sheikh Jarrah. This is the neighborhood in East Jerusalem where evictions had recently been taking place. She continues, Israeli forces are forcing families from their homes during Ramadan and inflicting violence. James Zogby, who's the president of the Arab American Institute, told the Washington Post that he said that in the 40 odd years I've been working on these issues full time, I've never seen this level of support for Palestinian rights and challenging the status quo. So, so far though, but the Biden administration has really been resisting this pressure. They've dispatched an envoy to the region and made dozens of calls to regional leaders, but, but otherwise they seem pretty helpless in the face of this escalating conflict. And in my reading, one reason for this is that, you know, as well as the fact that the region is, is coming to be seen as less important to American interests, it's also the fact that US influence over the conflict is, is near an all-time low. Hamas certainly isn't going to listen to Biden. Netanyahu isn't either. And Biden remembers how during the Obama administration, Obama made a call for Netanyahu to, to impose a freeze on the construction of new settlements um, in occupied Palestinian territory and to actually give territorial concessions to the Palestinians in future negotiations. And this had absolutely zero impact on Netanyahu, he just didn't listen, but it caused a huge political blowback against Obama at home from Republicans, and Obama suffered in domestic politics as a result of that. Biden, I think, wants to avoid getting into this situation where he's making calls that have no impact on what's happening, and at the same time, cause him a lot of problems in American domestic politics. But, you know, that there are actions that he could take that might be in impactful, that might actually make a difference. But these are things like questioning deeper structure of the American-Israeli alliance and, and calling that into question. 
and maybe calling into question or threatening to suspend the billions of dollars in arms which the US sends to Israel every year. But these actions would be enormously controversial in American domestic politics, you know, where support for Israel is generally very, very strong, despite the fact that we see this increased questioning in parts of the Democratic Party. So I don't think Biden's going to take those measures when he just fundamentally doesn't see this conflict as that important. And it's also clear, or rather I should say, it's not clear that, you know, what Biden's views on Israel are. So what is clear is that Biden has been a long-term supporter of Israel. It's not clear that he would want to do these things, even if he could. I don't know how much Biden's personal psychology and his views of the conflict have been affected by this change that it's undergone over the last decade or so, you know, in which Israeli governments have moved further and further to the right and have simultaneously Netanyahu has tried to really align himself with the Republicans in American domestic politics and with Trump. I don't know how much this has affected Biden's thinking and made him rethink the fundamentals of his very long-term support for Israel. But so far, we don't have any indication that that kind of rethinking has taken place. And the irony of this is that as this violence keeps on escalating, the US will inevitably be forced to step forward and to take clearer positions on the conflict. Biden is eventually going to have to say something forceful on this issue. And when he does, you know, what he says is going to have really big consequences for his claim to be placing human rights back at the center of American foreign policy, which is something that um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has already talked at length about. This is the moment where the rubber really hits the road in terms of Biden's commitment to human rights. And we're going to see how he handles this and how he handles the increasing pressure within the left wing of the Democratic Party to take a much, much more forceful stance towards Israel. It's also a demonstration of how difficult it is for American presidents to move on from the Middle East, even when they say that they want to. So we're going to keep tracking these developments on America Explained. We're still in the early days of what's likely, sadly, to be a long conflict. So please check back in the future for for updates. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, help us grow, help us in our mission to promote a deeper understanding of the United States throughout the world. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.